Hello and welcome back to the Polaris Travel Health Podcast. Thanks for tuning in with us this week. I guess it's been probably more than a week since we've done one of these, Jaden. We're a little behind on that. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, this week, Jaden and I will be talking about Lyme disease and other uh, types of tick-borne illnesses. Yeah, we've been uh, we've been on a little bit of a hiatus lately, but hopefully we're, we're back now. But yeah, I think that um, these sorts of tick-borne illnesses have kind of been getting a little bit more attention, especially for Lyme disease. So I thought that it would be interesting to kind of have a bit of a chat about that. Um, one thing I will say is insurance data in the U.S. suggests that about 476,000 people were diagnosed and treated for Lyme disease annually between 2010 and 2018, which is about a 20, 20% increase from 2005 to 2010. But what actually is Lyme disease and why do you think we've seen kind of like such a big jump? So Lyme disease is a disease that's caused by a bite of an infected tick. Usually uh, one of the ticks from the I think it's the Ioxides uh, family, like uh, the deer tick in the eastern part of uh, the North American continent and the western black-legged tick on the Pacific coast. And those are probably the two main groups of ticks that we see in, in North America. Basically, what's happening is they're transmitting a, a disease, uh, and uh, my pronunciation is really bad, but it's a Borrelia burgdorferi, I believe, something to that effect. Anyway... Um, what basically happens is the the ticks transmit this disease to people, and then you know they're essentially the vectors of the disease, and they get it from other animals. And then if they bite a person, then they essentially infect the person. Right. So, what normally happens when you're bitten by one of these infected ticks? Like, what's kind of the procession of things? Most of the time, what you see right off the bat is there is like a rash. A rashy type thing around the the site where you were bit and it usually happens within a week to 10 days after initially being infected and i think what in your advanced research Jaden, you said about 80 percent of the time I, I that sounds about right i think it's not it's most of the time but not every time and it is sort of a unusual looking rash in the sense that it's usually has sort of defined circle kind of around the where the bite is, and then it kind of gets bigger. Some would even describe it kind of like a, a bullseye almost. Uh, and then, you know, in addition to sort of the the dermatological skin-based effect, then people can also feel, you know, fever, chills, headache, fatigue, joint aches, all that stuff. And, you know, it can even potentially even go to, you know, mental status changes and that sort of thing and some you know, cardiac problems. But I think that most of the time we associate things with more of those chills and fever and headache and fatigue. Right. So what does the kind of treatment look like? And will you recover from Lyme disease? I think we're starting to hear a lot more about kind of like a chronic type of Lyme disease and how, like kind of how likely it is it. So there are treatments available. And I think the easiest thing, the easiest way to treat is it, when it's at the localized stage, um, you can basically start an antibiotic. And there's a few different choices, and it's usually an oral antibiotic. The one I'm most familiar with is doxycycline. But I think some people, depending on their, their health status and their pregnancy status, doxycycline isn't always um, uh, the number one choice. But uh, typically speaking, doxycycline is the number one thing I usually associate with. Um, so if you take that, that usually can, can treat the infection quite effectively. Once it's entered the nerve, the central nervous system, then you need to start thinking about, 
you know, IV antibiotics for extended periods of time, like in the two to four week range. And yeah, that's IV antibiotics is obviously there's a lot more going on there. The drugs are, are, um, well, it's, it's inconvenient to, to take. It's an IV that you got to do for all those weeks. And, you know, a lot of times you can do that on, on an outpatient basis, like with a uh, IV pump, but it's still, um, the antibiotics tend to have a bit of a higher side effect profile and it's just more, more complicated thing. A lot of people will recover and have no long-term problems, but some people will have recurrent symptoms, like especially muscle aches and fatigue. And if you start having those recurrent type symptoms, really like you can't just take more antibiotics and it'll, it'll solve the problem. We think that at that point, it's sort of turning into an autoimmune situation where you still have these symptoms because somehow your immune system has been activated from the initial disease. And it's poorly understood. Uh, we know there's definitely like, it's definitely a real thing and, and something that you you can document and you can, you can uh, quantify, but exactly why it would affect someone and not someone else. And that stuff's really not clear. Right. Right. It seems to be kind of an area where the research is really still kind of developing. I, I, w- I would definitely agree with that. I think that, you know, for a while there, like, you know, we're talking maybe not just in the last couple of years, but like further back, like this whole concept of, of Lyme disease, having this kind of response, it wasn't necessarily people didn't believe, but it, it was hard for health professionals to sort of wrap their heads around what this all was. And I think it was very poorly understood and, and sometimes sort of dismissed to a degree. But I think that, you know, that hasn't been the case for quite a while now. I think we know that this can, this is definitely like a, you know, a, a thing, right? When you start talking about sort of the history of, of Lyme disease, it, it kind of does have a little bit of an odd history. But anyway, maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Definitely. Okay, where are you most likely to kind of come into contact with these ticks that are likely to be vectors of Lyme disease? So historically, this has been a very East Coast disease. We're talking about sort of areas like the New England, the Northeast part of the United States, and into, you know, Ontario and, and Quebec, I think even to the maritime provinces to a degree. But but really, when you, when you think about North America, it's always been sort of that Ontario and then like New York, Connecticut, you know, Vermont, like all of those New England type states there. But we know now that it can be in other areas, like we've, we've started to see it in places in throughout Canada into Manitoba. And there's been some reports that even further on, uh, further west and going south now, I think that there's been cases into Virginia and into places like Minnesota, although not as common. The main thing to remember is these are usually forested areas, right? Like that's one of the reasons why, you know, something like Lyme disease and, and geez, I better be careful when I say this because I don't have the numbers in front and I don't think you have them either, but Saskatchewan, for example, is not exactly Lyme disease central. Well, part of it is that, you know, a good chunk of where the population of Saskatchewan lives, it's not that forested. There's a lot of areas that are forested, but they're not really, not too many people there. But but you, you need places where there's forest and a lot of human habitation to see cases. Right. Right. They, uh, they only like to hang out where the trees are. And outside of that part of the country, there aren't a lot of places where the humans and the trees interact that often. That's true. And then when you start thinking about other parts of, 
of the world. Certainly, you know, Europe and Northern Asia in forested areas, there is definitely a risk of, of tick illnesses uh, there. I think, you know, you start thinking about places in Russia and even into China, but even areas like if you would say sort of Scandinavian areas and German Germany and, and then, you know, Bavarian forest, you know, for example, like those are areas where there can be, there can potentially be, be issues. Right. Right. And they, but they have a different type of tick that gets you there, don't they? Yeah. It's a different type of tick. Yeah. Actually, when you start getting into that, like there's there, they actually have a a vaccine that they actually can use for that part of the world. It's similar, but different. Interesting. Okay. Well, because I was going to um, ask you about the Lyme Rix vaccine that was briefly kind of approved and in use in the U.S., but then shortly thereafter was removed from the market. Yes, this is an interesting story. Well, I guess it's interesting if you're a vaccine nerd, but uh, <laughs> so Lyme Rix is, was a vaccine, a human vaccine for for um, Lyme disease. And I think then you actually looked this up, Jaden. I think it was approved in the states in the F- by the FDA in 1998, but it only lasted a few years. Uh, manufacturer withdrew it from the market. Basically, what happened with this was that there was so much negative media coverage. There were a lot of lawsuits where people claimed that the vaccine had had um, had adverse reactions. I think was involving some autoimmune responses. Now. My understanding of it, and again, I, I might not have all of this exactly right, so don't hold me to, to this perfectly, but really all of the, the claims of the lawsuits were mostly refuted. Like there didn't seem to be a whole lot to back them up. I think that most of the lawsuits were, were dismissed and basically there was no connect the dots there. But the problem was at that point, so much of this had made news and so much of it, uh, Limerix had been sort of dragged through the negative media bubble at the time. And really the drug company basically said, forget this, we're, we're done. Like there's no point in, no point in the demand for the vaccine just dropped, you know, whether it was realistic or not that these problems were happening, the perception was there. And, and since it was a vaccine that, you know, certainly was an optional vaccine, not required for anything and, and relatively small area at the time, it was rare to see Lyme disease outside of that northeastern part of the United States. So it wasn't like a massive, massive market. The drug company just bailed on it. And it's the formula is still sitting on a shelf somewhere. And I don't think the company has any plans to bring it back. But but it, it was with voluntarily withdrawn from the market. It wasn't like it was um, banned or anything else like that. Right, right. And so is it the one that you mentioned before? Is that a human vaccine or is that one that they use on animals? That's the human vaccine. There still is, like, uh, I'm not uh, much on um, veterinary vaccines, but I believe there is a Lyme disease vaccine that is available for, for dogs, for example. But uh, yeah, that's that's not not the same as this one. It's this completely different veterinary vaccine. Interesting. Okay. Do you know, you've, you've got... You're, you, you've got dogs. That, do you, does that ring any bells for you at all? I, I believe so because they're, um, well, they're quite low to the ground. They like to run around in the grass. And so there is a lot of um, emphasis on protection against ticks. So I don't know if it's something that the vet always recommends. It's this, I would assume it's kind of similar thing to um, how there's a, an animal vaccine for rabies. 
that's not always it's not mandatory it's not part of the like regular drug schedule or the regular vaccine schedule for animals but it is something that if say you had um a farm dog or something like that or you hunted with dogs frequently that's probably something that you would be recommended to get yeah that makes sense well i I know one thing about rabies vaccine in dogs is that essentially dogs getting rabies in north america is basically been eradicated it just doesn't happen anymore because of the vaccination programs like i guess in theory a dog could get rabies but there hasn't been a case of a like a domestic dog that's passed on rabies to a human in north america for many many years if if a human ever gets rabies in canada and the united states it's it's from something else whether it's you know most likely a bat or else maybe a skunk or a raccoon or something but definitely not from a dog yes yeah which the whole bat thing them giving you rabies that that always gives me the skeeves but, oh yeah uh, <laughs> that's so true <laughs> but uh anyways what about um other kind of tick-borne illnesses ones that are maybe get a little bit less i don't want to say hype but uh, a little bit less attention that you could still potentially come in contact with there is a a few to talk about and, and one i particularly like to talk about is tick-borne encephalitis which is um an illness which mostly occurs in Europe and Asia gives you flu-like symptoms, but um, most people will recover, but about a third of people will have like, it'll get real serious, like where you'll have fever, neurological symptoms, paralysis, and it it can kill you. It's kind of in a way similar to some other things we've seen, you know, encephalitis, it's swelling in the brain. So it's you know, we talked on a previous episode about something like Japanese encephalitis, which is viral uh, disease that causes encephalitis swelling in the brain from a mosquito. This is kind of similar, except it's uh, it's an illness carried by uh, one of these ticks. The interesting thing about this one is that there is a vaccine for it. And there's been a vaccine in Europe forever. And there is now a vaccine approved in the United States called Ticovac. It was just approved in the United States last year. Now, here's the weird thing. Ticovac was available in Canada for years and years and years and years. And then it was called FSME immune or something like that. It was available for years. And then it was discontinued by the manufacturer in about 2014 or 2015 because no one was using it because it was such a niche product. I remember when we opened up Polaris in 2013, I ordered in one container like one uh dose of of this vaccine and uh we never used it (laughs) it went bad (laughs) i think i saved it actually i think i saved the box and then it was discontinued and it was never you know we never ordered it in again obviously but anyway that vaccine is now available after all these years it's now available in the states and and i don't know how much uptake it's had but if you were going to go camp in central europe it would probably be a good idea to have that interesting I like uh, I like the name Ticovac. I think that's kind of a snappy little name for that type of vaccine. But it's too bad that it kind of didn't didn't work out. I think that was just one of those things where it's like you know where Canada is a small market, neat, really niche products. Sometimes they're just you know in the states. I guess they could justify it by the population so much bigger that you know maybe they could go through as i understand it, it's the same product that's been available in europe for years and years and years all of these ones the one in canada and ticovac in the states it's all the same thing it's just that somebody finally got around to making the effort to getting it fda approved in the states and now it's available in the states but 
it's not a new vaccine. It's just newly approved there. Right. But this t- tick-borne encephalitis does not happen in North America. There's no like domestic cases. No. And, and this vaccine wouldn't protect you against Lyme disease, for example. It's just, right. yeah, exactly. So there's no, there's not as much of a market for it. Okay. Well, what about any of the other kind of tick-borne illnesses? I think that, you know, every, every year when the summer comes and I, you know, take my dog to the dog park and we're walking through some tall grass, I think of, you know, this is the time, this is the year that I get bit by a tick. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's, it's never fun. And fortunately, most of the time when you get bit, nothing real bad happens, but there's, there are a couple other things. And I, I, couple of the other ones that uh, I know you you put on the outline to sort of remind me of, and they're both good ones, is babesiosis, I believe is the correct, connect, correct pronunciation. It's mostly on the coast of North America, and it can be in Europe and Asia. And it kind of similar type thing, fever, chills, all that sort of stuff. But, you know, it, as in a lot of these other situations, it can be fatal potentially in certain situations. Anaplasmosis is another one, also more coastal rarely reported in in Canada, but there's a couple other ones here. And I I think that, you know, uh, ehrlichosis is another one. I probably said that wrong, but it's more in Southeastern United States. I don't think that one uh, has ever happened in Canada, but I think that it has been in other, other countries. A couple things about that one, which are weird is that uh, you can get a a rash on the, your palms or the soles of your feet, which I think is kind of interesting. And, I believe another one is uh, Powassan virus, which is more in the Great Lakes area. I don't have a whole lot. Honestly, I don't know that much about that one. (laughs) Uh, There can be some neurological changes and and altered mental status. And that one, what I do know about it is that there have been cases in in Canada on that one, as opposed to the, the previous one, which I don't think there's ever been a Canadian case. Right. Well, to be fair, I had not heard of any of these aside from tick-borne encephalitis before I put them on here. So, <laughs> never heard of them. Bad is so. Oh, I can't even say that one. <laughs> I, I was I was much more familiar with that one. The last couple, not so much. But uh... no, I had not. Maybe the the last one, but I I can't say that I'm was particularly familiar with um, ticks. But I think that in Alberta, we don't really think about it that often because we don't really live in that type of like area. Like I think maybe in Ontario, people are maybe a little bit more aware of ticks because I think there's a lot more interaction with them potentially. But I think that as you get out into the the drier Western parts, there's not really as much thought put towards that. But uh, yeah, what can you do to avoid kind of coming into contact with ticks if you are doing something like camping or hiking or whatever it is? Well, I think a lot of the things are just sort of really common sense things like avoidance. And if you are going to be doing a lot of uh, uh, spending a lot of time in like long grasses and in in really wooded areas, brushy areas, you know, long pants tucked into the boots, you know, limiting exposure to your, um, you know, uh, covering up the best you can. Staying on designated paths is always good. And you can use you know, insect repellents, things like, like DEET and iCared, and those, those are products that, that will work and, and there will be benefit there. And also, you know, you want to check yourself for, for uh, ticks periodically when you're doing these kind of activities. So, and if you ever find one, you know, the best thing to probably do is, is have um, 
a really fine tip tweezer or like a forcep. There's actually even special tick removers in it that is basically like a fancy tweezer. And then you just grab as close to the skin as possible and yank it directly upward. And uh, sounds I've never had to do it myself, but it does not sound like fun. But And after that, then you just clean the area and, and try not to touch it. Go from there. But those are probably the main things to think about. We don't usually prescribe like antibiotics or anything like that unless we actually think we have there's been a, an incident where there's been a bite and there's a risk right if you are to find or have to unfortunately yank one out of your leg or your arm i would assume it's probably going to be on your leg should you seek medical attention every time or is it sometimes you can kind of go on your way well I, you know i think if certainly you had any of those symptoms like we talk about the bullseye rash that sort of thing, I think you absolutely would. Otherwise, you know, I, I'm not sure if it's completely mandatory every time you've had a you've had a tick bite. But if you certainly have those symptoms, you definitely need to to get checked out. Right. So more of a keep an eye on it type of strategy. Definitely, I wouldn't necessarily like get bit by a tick and then like, okay, everyone, trips canceled. <laughs> Let's go back to see a doctor. I see. Okay. All right. Well, anything else you want to mention, chat about things that I missed that you think are essential to the tick conversation? Not really. I think it's an interesting area. It's not, as you said, in Alberta, it's not maybe a central part of the discussion, but we have seen cases more like in this part of the world more recently. So it's not completely unheard of now, but, um, but it, it it's something to, to sort of keep in the back of your mind. And if you're traveling other places, you probably do need to think about it for sure. And, you know, tick-borne encephalitis, if you're heading off to uh, to Europe and you're going to be camping in the Bavarian forest or something like that in the Black Forest, yeah, it might be something to think about, but we'd have to arrange it out of the country and someplace else, uh, get it done in a travel clinic in Europe or in the States. But uh, that's, you know, that's a bit of a commitment, but I, I suppose it's always a theoretical possibility. Right. And would you say that the kind of like increase in cases that we've seen kind of further out from where we've previously seen them, is that because the ticks are moving or is that because the reservoirs have kind of spread and then the ticks that already exist have just picked it up? I I think it's the latter actually, but yeah, it's, you know, you know, everything is just moving around so much more easily now. So I think that's mostly the case. I'm not completely sure, but I think that it's more the latter. Right. Okay. All right. Well, anything else? No, I think that should cover it. Okay. Well, thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of the Polaris Travel Health Podcast. A reminder that the information and advice that we provided in this podcast are not a substitute for live medical advice tailored to your itinerary and your medical history. If you have any questions or want to book an appointment, please head over to our website, www.polaristravelclinic.ca. Check us out on Twitter at Polaris Travel RX and our Facebook page as well. We hope you'll tune in again with us next week. Thanks, Jaden. Thank you.